Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Thank you, Felton. And welcome to an evening with Eric Kleinenberg, the conclusion of this year's One Community Reads initiative. I'm Stephanie Jansky, Director of Programming at the City Club of Cleveland. It's my pleasure to introduce to you the President and CEO of Playhouse Square, Gina Vernacy. Well, hello, we're so happy that you're with us here this evening. On behalf of Playhouse Square, our board of trustees, uh, all of my colleagues, we welcome you to the Mimi Ohio Theater. This evening is the culminating event of this year's Cuyahoga County Common Book Initiative, known in our great community as One Community Reads. Uh, there is something extremely powerful about a shared experience, whether it is at your favorite sporting event, here in a theater, uh, or, you know, or reading the same book. And we at Playhouse Square are very proud to be a part of the One Community Reads initiative and proud to welcome our to our stage this evening the author Eric Kleinenberg, the author of The Palaces of the People, How Social Infrastructure Can Help Fight Inequality, Polarization, and the Decline of Civic Life. I read it over the weekend, and it is so beautifully written. I can't wait to hear from him. But before we hear from Eric, I want to recognize and thank all of the One Community Reads partners, the Fairmount Temple, the City Club of Cleveland, Ideastream, Wick Poetry Center at Kent State University, and all nine Cuyahoga County library systems, your libraries, East Cleveland Public Library, Euclid Library, Heights Libraries, Lakewood Public Library, Rocky River Public Library, Shaker Heights Public Library, Westlake Public Library, and the Cuyahoga County Public Library and the Cleveland Public Library. All together, you have organized and presented over 100 events, which is just um, remarkable that are connected to this um, community-wide read. And of course, in Northeast Ohio, we are so fortunate to have such wonderful, outstanding organizations and institutions, and that certainly includes our library system. So how about a big hand to our libraries who enrich our, our lives so beautifully every day. And now please join me in welcoming to the stage the honorary chair of the One Community Reads, our Cuyahoga County Executive, Armin Budish. Hello, everybody. Well, I couldn't uh, shake her hand because that's part of the new rules today. No more shaking hands, but I did do a little of the leg kick. Uh, so it's uh, great uh, that all of you are here. I want to welcome you to the 2021 Community Reads Countywide uh, Book Discussion. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud. My wife participates in a book club. I think she has about eight other women 
I get to serve as the honorary chair of the Northeast, uh, uh, Northeast Ohio largest book club with about, I don't know, several thousand members. So I'm very proud to be able to tell her my book club's bigger than hers. <laughs> and I'm thrilled uh, to join you in this conversation about the importance of physical spaces and social infrastructures in Cuyahoga County. Last year, the inaugural One Community Reads book discussion demonstrated the power of conversation in our region, evicted united elected officials and community leaders and change agents from all over the county, uh, and it sparked a dialogue in dozens and dozens of libraries about the impact of an eviction and the meaning of affordable housing for everyone. In fact, as a result of that program, we're working with United Way and the Legal Aid Society and the City of Cleveland on a program called the Right to Counsel, which will provide support to individuals who are either facing eviction or have been evicted. Reading across the community does have significant impacts. This year's title, Palaces for the People, How Social Infrastructure Can Help Fight Inequality, Polarization, and the Decline of Civic Life, by Eric Kleinenberg. That continues the conversation we began in 2018. The reading challenges participants to look at the social side of our physical spaces, to see whether these physical spaces encourage personal connections. When Mr. Kleinenberg talks about physical spaces, he's generally referring to our parks, our museums, churches, libraries, just as examples. We're living at a time when we're extremely divided as a people, and at a time when civil discourse is often lacking. We're living at a time when isolation is common, a time when we can be alone while in a group of people playing on our cell phones. Mr. Kleinenberg po posits that social infrastructure, public places like parks and schools and gyms and coffee shops and libraries can build our social fabric by bringing people together. Libraries are a great example of how social infrastructure can bring people together. In Cuyahoga County and in Cleveland, we have great libraries that do so much more than just distribute books. Whether it's helping people with their public benefits or educating people for their GEDs or providing opportunities for innovation and we're just starting a new project with the libraries which will create family spaces for youngsters and their parents. Our libraries are bringing people together and that serves the social network. For the past 10 weeks, Palaces for the People evoked dialogue at programs and events at our libraries throughout Cuyahoga County. And more importantly, here tonight at Playhouse Square. Last month, community members in Lakewood participated in a panel at the library about how a sense of belonging can strengthen their neighborhoods. At the same time, residents in Warrensville Heights recognized the rich tradition of poetry and the spoken word at its celebrated shared social infrastructure. Moreover, this year, our nine library systems will support the vital conversations about the upcoming 2020 U.S. Census and how a complete count will affect funding for our parks, schools, and so much more. And I have to just take a minute to, uh, not a minute, just 10 seconds, 
to talk about how important the census is. It's critically important. The county has worked closely with so many community partners, including the libraries, to make sure everyone in our county gets, gets counted so that we get the resources in Cuyahoga County that we're entitled to that we don't get if people aren't counted. Uh, so it's critical that when the census people come around, fill it out, give the answers, and make sure your friends all understand to do that too. But that was my 10-second digression. Uh, I want to thank you all for being a part of this dialogue sparked by Eric Kleinenberg's impactful book. And I hope you continue to participate in the rest of the events planned this season at your local library. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge all the partners in this effort, the libraries, Playhouse Square, Fairmont Temple, and the City Club for spearheading this effort and leading the charge to provide access and information to help advance our communities here. Thank you to our public media partners at IdeaStream for helping us again bring this conversation tonight to branch libraries in the area. I want to thank Mr. Eric Kleinenberg for writing such an inspiring book, a book which celebrates America's most valued social infrastructures and for reminding us that positive change can only begin when we engage in conversations with each other. I'm now pleased to welcome for the official City Club of Cleveland introduction and welcome to our keynote speaker, Tracy Strobel. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you for participating in One Community Reads. My name is Tracy Strobel, and I am proud to be the executive director of Cuyahoga County Public Library. As a librarian of nearly 25 years, I'm especially excited about this year's One Community Reads title, Palaces for the People, and tonight's presentation by its author, Eric Kleinenberg. As I'm sure you can imagine, this book is beloved by librarians and library supporters across the nation. Mr. Kleinenberg acknowledges and so aptly articulates the importance of public libraries as places that foster dialogue and civic engagement. Libraries are places that fight isolation and loneliness, places where all people, regardless of their socioeconomic status, are welcome to avail themselves of services and resources that can enhance the quality of their lives. Industrial tycoon Andrew Carnegie, arguably the most prolific early benefactor of our US public libraries said, there is not such a cradle of democracy upon the earth as the free public library where neither rank, office, nor wealth receives the slightest consideration. Incidentally, Mr. Carnegie also coined the phrase palaces for the people as an apt descriptor of public libraries. Drawing on research in urban planning, behavioral economics, and environmental psychology, as well as on his own fieldwork from around the world, Eric Kleinenberg argues that the future of democratic societies rests not simply on a set of shared values, but on shared spaces, libraries, parks, Playhouse Square, the City Club, places of worship, they all help us form crucial and sometimes life-saving connections. These are places where people gather, linger, and strengthen personal ties 
and promote interaction across group lines. He argues that a community's very resilience correlates strongly with the robustness of its social infrastructure. Greater Cleveland is nothing but not resilient. And according to Eric Kleinenberg, you have your amazing library systems to thank for that. I might be taking some liberties here with that, but Eric Kleinenberg, joining us this evening, is the Helen Gould Shepherd Professor of Social Sciences and the Director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. He has authored a number of books, including Going Solo, The Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal of Living Alone, and Heat Wave, A Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago. He also co-authored the New York Times number one bestseller, Modern Romance, with actor-comedian Aziz Ansari. His scholarly work has been published in journals, including the American Sociological Review, Theory and Society, and Ethnography. Ethnography, sorry. And he has contributed to The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Rolling Stone, and This American Life. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Eric Kleinenberg. Hi there. Thank you very much. Can you, can, you can hear me okay? I'm so impressed that there's live human beings here tonight. Um, let I've got to say, first of all, what a, a, an enormous uh, honor and privilege it has been to have this book read by so many people in this community. It is really a dream of an author to get this kind of um, uh, a, a attention and um, respect and thoughtfulness in the response to a piece of work. And uh, it means a great deal to me personally. Uh, this, you, you might not be aware of this, but this was not the best day to travel by plane. Uh, and there was a big part of me that said, I should not get on an airplane today. And there was another big part of me that said, if you miss this night, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. So here I am, and thank you for being here. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's great to be here um, because the paperback version of this book came out not too long ago. And, and it was really important to do kind of a reset um, of the of the paperback uh, because when the cloth book first came out and I went out on book tour um, it was September of 2018 and uh, my publisher Crown was really invested in the book and they decided they were going to send me out to lots of different cities to talk about it and that's a really big privilege for authors these days and just as I launched the project uh, I, you might not remember this, but a few years ago, there was this guy named uh, Brett Kavanaugh who got nominated for the Supreme Court. Any of you follow that story? Uh, there were some hearings, and they decided to hold the hearings right when my book tour started. And it was very hard to actually get on all the TV shows and radio stations that had scheduled me um, because everybody was just talking about the Kavanaugh hearings, um, you know, which was really important. Uh, no, no doubt about its significance, um, but it definitely put my book in the shadow. And so we came up with this plan that we would publish the paperback at a time when the country could really focus on uh, this issue. And uh, we thought, 
probably this time of year, we would all be ready to come together in great rooms and talk about how important it is for us to gather together uh, intimately and in person uh, in spaces like this. And so, here we are. And where I want to go tonight is that um, I, I, I'm going to recognize, having just gotten off the plane from New York City, that we're in a moment that's a kind of crisis. And there's a lot of things going on that are going to make it stressful to be here. And we are going to be encouraged to distance ourselves socially from one another and to hunker down and to quarantine and to isolate and things are going to change and it's going to be a wild few weeks or months. We don't know how long this is going to last. Um, and I think we need to be respectful of what the public health scientists tell us we need to do to protect each other. And, and let's do that. But surprisingly, as I was thinking about it today, I, I came to realize that in a way the message of my book, what I want to tell you tonight, is more relevant today than it was even yesterday or a week ago because the truth is that even if what you want to do now in some ways is think about what it means to hunker down, the only way that we get through the period that's ahead of us is if that's one impulse, but the other impulse we have is to find a way to reach out and help everyone else around us, the people who really need our support right now. Uh, because there are a lot of people for whom uh, us turning the, our backs away and taking care of ourselves and neglecting that common good that has been such a big part of this country, and I know this community for such a long time, um, if we do that, we're going to let a lot of people suffer and a lot of people go unattended to. And there are a lot of people living with us uh, who are invisible most of the time and who are socially isolated and who are vulnerable. And, and really, uh, the measure of a society is how we take care of it in a moment like this. And, and we don't generate the impetus to come together and help one another if we don't have some sense of a collective to begin with. And we can't build some sense of who we are unless we come together. So, I, you know, none of us know what's going to happen in the next few weeks, but there's one thing I know for sure, and that is that unless we have evenings like this where we sit down together and talk about who we are and what we value and why it matters that we build bridges to each other, we will fail to muster the kind of collective project we need to get through all the challenges that we have ahead of us. And one of the goals I have for the next 45 minutes is to persuade you that that's right. Okay? So I, I've got, I, I know we're part of the way there because you're all in this room, you know, and, th and thank you for being here. The book I wrote is called Palaces for the People. And as you just heard, that's a phrase that comes from uh, Andrew Carnegie. And um, since it's Cleveland, not Pittsburgh, uh, I can tell you that Carnegie had kind of a mixed record when it comes to human decency. Uh, <laughs> You know, he, he, he was one of the great philanthropists of his time, for sure, and, and he, um, he, he gave funds to build more than 1,700 libraries across the United States and more than 2,500 around the world, um, which is extraordinary. Um, but, you know, he didn't do 
perfect work in every dimension of his life, um, was a controversial employer, was vehemently against the uh, income tax. Um, and many people have argued that, you know, had the United States had a fair tax at the time that Carnegie and some of the other big barons of that day, uh, you know, were doing their work, we might not have needed great philanthropy because we could have taken each other, care of each other with collective goods. But the truth is that library systems, like you know, many other public goods in the United States, have always uh, been part of public-private partnerships. And Carnegie played a key role in this story. And the reason I call the book Palaces for the People is because Carnegie used to say that he, he truly wanted the library to work like a palace for, for everyone. And you know, many of the classic Carnegie buildings, the libraries, have this incredible architectural style. They have a few steps that take you out of the mundane, everyday world. Remember, he was helping to support libraries at a time when uh, there were a lot of immigrants, uh, poor people living in American cities. He was an immigrant himself, uh, and the library was an important institution for him when he was a young man. The, the idea he had was that you would walk up these steps out of the profane world and come into the sacred space where you would have you know, big ce high ceilings and, and large windows, and there was a lot of light, and the library was open to you, and it would dignify you, it would, it would recognize your, the best part of you, it would give you a chance to make something more of yourself, uh, and it would be the, a, a special institution where you felt the generosity of society land on your shoulders. And that was an experience that a lot of Americans and a lot of poor Americans didn't have at the time that he was, he was making that, that, those gifts. And, and that's a very important idea. And, I, you know, there are a lot of people who um, grow up appreciating the local library, the, the branch library, pub public goods, and they recognize how their own fate is tied to the way that their community has given to those things. I grew up in Chicago in the 1970s and 80s. And I don't know if any of you here in this room spent time in Chicago in the 1970s and 80s, but it was not a glorious period for our public institutions, right? We had we'd actually made some big investments in things like libraries and parks and public housing complexes, which when they first went up were the envy of, of you know, much of, of the country. They, they looked like they were going to be beautiful projects, but when things got hard financially, the city of Chicago stopped investing in those places and uh, basically they fell apart. And so I did not spend a lot of time in libraries as a kid. W my book is not just about libraries, but I talk a lot about them in, in part because I really came to discover and appreciate all the things that they do in the context of doing this research. The idea that I really wanted to look at is this idea that there's a thing in our world called social infrastructure. That's the driving idea behind palaces, that we talk all the time about the infrastructure for, for power, or for communications, or for transit, uh, and those things are all, all matter. But what I argue in this book is that there's also a thing called social infrastructure, by which I mean a, a set of physical places and organizations, too, that shape our capacity to interact with each other. And uh, the, the claim I make is that when we invest heavily in social infrastructure, when we design it well and beautifully, when we maintain it well, think of Chicago, not, not so maintained. Uh, when we program it, we have live human beings there helping to make sure that good things happen. When we do all those things, investing in it, we get all kinds of amazing returns to our social life. Like, l let me just ask, any of you um, 
parents in the room today? I can't see all that well here. Any parents here? Any people who've ever been children in the room? We have some people who've been children. So those of you who said yes to either of those, think about the value of the playground in your neighborhood. Right, I think it's social infrastructure. Um, How many relationships do you think exist in this city and county because two caretakers, parents, grandparents, sitters, happen to go to the same playground in the same neighborhood on enough of the same afternoons that eventually one of them has to look up from their phone and talk to the other person. And you say, you know, look, uh, I just got a call. Uh, I, we haven't really talked all that much, but you, know, you and I push the same swing together all the time, and I've got to deal with this. Would you mind just watching my daughter for five minutes? And the person says yes, and you strike up a conversation, and the next thing the conversation turns into, well, let's go sit and have a picnic together, and then the families get together, and then the families introduce the, each other to each other's neighbors and friends, and then there's something that like, like a community happens. Does that, sound, does that story sound familiar? I don't know how you guys live your lives here, but does that sound familiar? Yeah? Okay, how many relationships exist in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County because there's a playground in the neighborhood? What would you say, six? Eight? Eight thousand, a hundred, hundreds of that, millions? Think over time of the, you might not know this, but there's not really a part of the Old Testament where God says on the seventh day, thou shalt be playgrounds. Uh, They're a thing that we created as a kind of social infrastructure, right? And, And as a consequence of that decision and the investment we made in building them up, there are all kinds of relationships that exist that wouldn't otherwise exist. And they're, and they're special things. But also, if you build a playground, and, and, and it's 1964, and in 1972, you decide there's no more budget for the playground in this city anymore, and so you don't update the equipment, and when people come in and start to you know, drink at night and throw their bottles and they fall down, you let the bottles and the broken glass stay there, and you, and you don't do anything to make them work well, then the playgrounds don't do that much either, right? And so it's, it's not just building social infrastructure, it's, it's um, maintaining it, too. And the theory of the book is that this is something that we have really failed to, to, to do well. And when you look around the country, the world, even if you compare neighborhoods and towns inside of this county, compare different neighborhoods, and look to see what different kinds of social infrastructure are available, you will find vast disparities and the places that have excellent social infrastructure get all kinds of returns for that in terms of health and public safety and education and social connection and resilience. And the places that don't have social infrastructure like that suffer all kinds of higher risk. Now, that's an argument that I came by very honestly. I, the, the fir- I, I started my career doing a project about my home city, Chicago. It was 1995, the summer of 1995. I was just about to head to graduate school in California. I was out of the country, and I read in the newspaper that my hometown had just suffered a heat wave, and more than 700 people died, even though the heat wave lasted just a couple days. Do you, can you remember that? Does that, did that register in Cleveland? You probably got the tail end of that heat. Uh, it, was a, it was a huge event. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. 
And I, and, and I was trying to figure out how more than 700 people could die from something as innocuous as the heat in 1995. And it turns out that um, it wasn't just an ordinary heat wave. It actually got up to about 106 degrees, and it felt like 126. And the power went out for a little while, and, and there were a lot of um, outages with the, with the infrastructure in the city. But it turned out if you looked at, at a map of who died and where they died, it, it wasn't the kind of usual suspects of infrastructure that determined those patterns. It wasn't like the mortality was completely related to which neighborhoods lost power. There's something else going on. So I decided what I wanted to do is the study where I draw a map to see which people and which places were most vulnerable to the heat wave, and then um, look really closely to see what patterns emerged. And uh, when I did it the first time, it looked like it was about to be the most boring and predictable finding in the history of social science. Uh, what I found, which is politically very important, uh, was that the neighborhoods that were, on average, the most vulnerable in the heat wave were the poor, segregated African-American neighborhoods on the south side and the west side. And those are the places that are vulnerable all the time to exogenous shocks. Um, and, and, and I say it's politically important because when you find a, something like that, you should ask, you know, well, given that that's pretty predictable, uh, why didn't people do anything or do more to protect what we all knew was going to be a, a high-risk area? But scientifically, it's not very interesting, right? Like, there's no Nobel Prize for the person who tells you that the most vulnerable people and places are going to suffer the most in a disaster. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? It's, scientifically, that was not... You're not going to see me in September this year with a Nobel Prize for that finding, uh, sad as my mother's going to be about that, because um, she feels like I'm overdue. Um, by the way, she's going to be very excited when she finds the cookies you guys made with the cover of my book on it. That's probably going to give gives me like five more years to get a Nobel Prize. So I think it's a lot of credit uh, for that. Thank you very much. Um, but then I did this thing which no one had really done before. Uh, that turned out to be much more interesting. I decided to kind of zoom in a little bit more and look at the neighborhoods, not just the neighborhoods that had the highest level of vulnerability, but also the neighborhoods in Chicago that had the lowest level of, of vulnerability in the heat wave, the places that had the highest survival rates. And I noticed something that no one had really paused to consider, which is that while it was true that the segregated poor neighborhoods on the south and west sides were on average the most dangerous places to be in, in the disaster, three of the 10 most uh, safe neighborhoods in Chicago turned out also to be very poor and very segregated in those same areas. And in some cases, they were literally right across the street from one of the neighborhoods that had suffered an incredibly high death rate. And that was puzzling and fascinating, and I, I, I said, I, okay, I've got to pay attention to this. So I started going around to these different neighborhoods to compare, you know, what I saw. And I'm going to, I'll tell you, you know, of the pattern by giving you an example of two different neighborhoods. There's two neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago. One, we're going to say this side of the room over here, called Auburn Gresham. And then over here on the left side of the room, there's a neighborhood called Englewood. And these neighborhoods are literally across the street from each other, um, same you know, weather system, on paper, demographically in 1995, they looked very similar to each other, similar population profile. And 
I first went over to Englewood, and you, and you go to Englewood, and what you see is, uh, first of all, the place is wildly depopulated. It's a neighborhood that had more, more than 100,000 people at its peak. In 1995, it's got fewer than 50,000 people living there. And it's not just that the people are absent, there's also this kind of social ecology that's got a lot of uh, empty lots and abandoned buildings. You got any places like this in Cleveland, by the way? Right? Because Chicago's not alone in this. Um, we all went through the same thing, which is that we built up economies based around these you know, big factories, and the factories shut down, and a lot of people left. And in Englewood, you see the remains of that. I mean, it's uh, houses that are you know, half knocked down, empty lots that aren't just empty. They're full of you know, debris and high, high weeds, and um, they, you know, they, they are very hard to manage and control. Um, not a lot of commercial activity. The, the, this you know, Englewood lost its grocery store for decades. Not even a lot of um, you know, diners, coffee shops, com local community organizations. And, and what happens if you live in Englewood, especially if you're older and more frail, is your survival strategy is you stay indoors a lot. You know, the street life is a little less accommodating, and so you kind of hunker down at home. And that works a lot of the time, um, but it doesn't work very well when there's a, a massive heat wave and it feels like it's 126 degrees outside. And the thing is, if you live in a neighborhood where people don't usually go outside and hang out on a stoop and go to a local diner uh, or grocery store and talk to each other on a regular basis, you don't notice when one of your neighbors doesn't show up outside because he rarely, you know, you don't see each other, you don't know. And so Angle would prove to be one of the most dangerous places you could be in all of Chicago that week. Meanwhile, I'm sorry to everybody who sat on this side of the room tonight. It's, it's not about you. Um, meanwhile, on, on this side of the room, uh, over in Auburn Gresham, across the street, you know, poor, segregated, got a lot of issues, but they never went through the depopulation wave that happened in Englewood. They didn't have the wave of arson. You don't find empty lots here. You don't find abandoned buildings. There uh, is a much denser commercial infrastructure that draws people out uh, on sidewalks. It's, not, it's a multi-generational public life that's there. There's a strong set of nonprofit organizations in the neighborhood. There's this kind of robust social infrastructure. And as a consequence, the day-to-day -day routines of people who live over here on this side of the room are really different. People get to, you know, they, they, they sit on the stoop a little bit more. They see each other. And here, when somebody who's older and a little bit frail doesn't go out, somebody notices and you knock on the door. And that's the thing about a heat death, right? It's, 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 it's so easy to prevent. If you knock on the door and get someone the, the cooling they need, you take care of the whole problem. And here there's a, there's a social infrastructure that supports this kind of casual solidarity, right? That's the difference between the two neighborhoods. It's not race, it's not culture, it's not social class. It's the physical layout. It's the resources that you have in the neighborhood public space that here encourage participation and social interaction and mutual support and over here make that much less likely. And here's how I really know this. It turns out that not only is Auburn Gresham one of the safest places you could be in the heat wave, but this neighborhood, even though it's literally across the street from Englewood, has a life expectancy that is five years longer on a day. Five years longer. That's an amazing thing. And that's a story of social infrastructure.
I hope this idea is becoming more vivid to you now, okay? And I hope it's also more clear why I think even when you've got a flu pandemic or a virus coming around, right, even when there's a, a, a massive public health crisis, these networks of support can make all the difference. So I finished this book about Chicago, and uh, soon after I moved to New York City, and um, in, I, I keep working on, on cities and public space. I got really interested in climate things. And uh, in September of 2012, a big thing happened in my career. I got invited to be the director of a, uh, an institute at New York University called the Institute for Public Knowledge. And um, our job is to kind of help to call attention to big public issues and generate meaningful uh, debates and, and good research. And uh, I announced that a lot of the work that the Institute uh, did was going to go into cities and climate change. And does anyone remember what happened in October 2012? Sandy. Sandy hit. And it was a big moment. And we, were, we happened to be kind of geared up. I mean, the power went out at NYU, but the, the day the power went back on, I called a meeting and said, anybody from the university who's a researcher or a student who wants to come and work on what's happening here now, come to our meeting room. A ton of people showed up. We started this thing we called the Superstorm Research Lab. We fanned out around the city and started doing work. We organized all these public events because it's, you know, I, I, I don't know if you have this here in Cleveland, but in New York, actually, when there's a big thing that happens to the city and we're trying to engage and address something, it's not clear what institution is going to step forward and help people process it in a public way. So we had all these, I mean, the library does that, City Club does that. Um, but it doesn't happen in every place. In New York's a, a, a big town. And, and so we just started holding these events, so Sandy, Climate Change, and the Future of New York City. And tons of people came. And um, I got really into the issue. I wrote this article for The New Yorker about adaptation and why New York had broken down the way that it would and how social infrastructure mattered. And um, one day, out of the blue, uh, I got this call from the Obama administration you guys remember the Obama administration? This seems like such a long time ago, doesn't it? The Obama administration, oh my God. Uh, I got this call and they said, um, hey, we've been following your work uh, and we're really interested in this social infrastructure idea and we're, and, and we're thinking about how to rebuild the, the region that was affected by Sandy. We've actually started this um, design competition we're calling Rebuild by Design and uh, we are inviting all these international teams of uh, engineers and architects and landscape architects and city planners to come together and propose um, ideas for how to rebuild the city and the region. And they asked if I would be the research director of the project, which is an amazing honor. And they asked if the institute I run could host it. And I said, yes. Um, and we started working. And it turned out that was an amazing thing that we did that because um, right after Sandy happened and people in New York City who felt like things like hurricanes but, you know, were problems for people in other parts of the world but not for us, um, were having a hard time kind of coming to terms with it. And there were all these you know, leading political officials and engineers whose um, proposal, like what they were saying New York City needed to do to survive a climate change world. Tell me if this phrase sounds familiar to you. They were saying uh, New York City needs to Build a, that is not much uh, energy tonight. Uh, 
It's very clear which part of Ohio I'm in here. So uh, uh, I'll just leave it at that, Ohio. Um, in that case, please do fill out the census form and register to vote. Um, so, uh, right? I mean, it's always fun for me to come to Ohio because, like, oh my God, if, if I lived here, I could actually have a vote. You know, As my opinion would matter. Uh, you are very lucky people. Um, so, yeah, there's people wanted to build a wall. They wanted to, there were all these proposals to build these giant seawalls around New York City, and um, they were they were real, and there was a lot of support behind them. And, and it's not a crazy idea because there are places on Earth that could not exist without giant seawalls. You know that, right? Like. Has anyone here ever been to New Orleans or all of the Netherlands, for instance? You know, like, you know, the, like the sea, we're, we're, the, we got seawalls and levees, they have to exist in some places, but it turns out, um, you know, building a seawall in New York City is a very tricky matter. Um, there's a lot of places where the water could come in, um, some exposed to the ocean, some exposed to, you know, mouths of ri rivers. Um, if you wanted to build giant walls to protect New York City, they'd, they'd have to be really, really high, and you'd have to deal with the fact that the seas are rising, and so eventually they get so high they, they block your views, and if you, you know, have them so that they have to be closed for a decent amount of time, you could really disrupt the whole ecosystem that, you know, flows in and out. You've heard of this thing called the Hudson River here. Have you know about that? And so, you know, the, there's a lot of life on the Hudson River, and you could screw that up with the seawalls, but also, um, you know, this is going to surprise you, but um, it turns out that, uh, don't tell everybody this, but if you, if, if you look across from the west side of New York City at Manhattan, there's an entire state called New Jersey there. Did you know, you know, and, and if you build a huge seawall to protect the city from, you know, the storm surge and the sediment and all the things that come smashing in in a, in a giant hurricane. Do you know where all that stuff goes? Right? Okay, okay I know what you're thinking. I, could, I see some people are, you, would, you can always see somebody's like, oh, that wouldn't be a bad idea. Maybe that wouldn't be such a terrible idea, you know? But before you go there, uh, I just want to remind you of um, Bruce Springsteen. Right? I was at the Hall of Fame today. I went to the Hall Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, that whole part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame would have to be removed. Uh, the Sopranos was pretty good. You like the Sopranos? I, basically, what I'm saying is you don't want to get rid of New Jersey, right? So, so let's say we decide to get generous, and we, in New York, we reach out to our friends in New Jersey, and we say, listen, we're going to throw you into the mix here, and we're going to build a giant wall, and it's going to circle New York City, and then we'll bring in New Jersey, too. I grew up in Chicago. That seemed like a really good idea to me. And then um, someone told me that if you go south from New Jersey, you know this? That there's a whole other state called Delaware. And then below Delaware is Maryland. My geography gets a little sketchy at this point. Uh, it's not Washington, D.C. after that. It's uh, Virginia, right? And then there's North Carolina. The problem is you've got to figure out where you're going to stop building the wall, right? And it turns out there's no place that it really works. A and I don't know what your views are because it is Ohio, but, you know, it, it, it is very hard to build a wall and solve our problems, you know? It's very hard to build a wall because one of the things about the wall is that when you build a wall, 
what you basically do is you, you protect people on one side to some extent, um, and you tell everybody on the other side, you know, we don't really care what happens to you. You know, you're on your own. And usually there's a lot of inequality when it comes to building walls. You know, the people who've got more wall themselves, they try to wall out someone else, protect themselves. And so one group that's already got something gets more, and the other group on the outside is cut off and made more vulnerable. And I, you know, I don't know about you, but that's not really my view of how we collectively solve our problems. Also, when it comes to water, it turns out it doesn't work all that well. And if you don't believe me, just watch uh, anything about Katrina. Um, the walls sometimes break, you know? The engineering systems break down. And so it's smart to think about social infrastructure too. And so um, in Rebuild by Design, we had these amazing projects that came out. There was a, a Danish architect named Bjarke Engels who designed a system he called the Big U, um, which was you know, meant to be this um, flood protection system that wrapped around lower Manhattan. They got funding to, um, to support just the bottom part of it uh, on, the, in, on the lower east side. And the notion is that instead of just building a regular wall, uh, Engels proposed that uh, you would build this kind of sloped landscape that would function like a wall on a daily basis. Um, when, or sorry, when the, when, the, when the water was very high, but on a daily basis would act like a park. And so it, you know, it was a kind of a transformed waterfront area with you know, better walkways and bike paths and fields and plantings, you know, this kind of gorgeous park. And the original idea was that it would be this bridging berm and it would operate like a wall. It would protect you when you need the protection, but on most days of the week, uh, it, 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 it would just be a beautiful part of the landscape and would promote social activity. Um, it would be a gathering place. And not every team had a uh, plan that came to them quite as easily as this plan came to Engels. Um, one of the things I'll never forget about this experience is that there was a day when I was walking around with this group of amazing designers who had um, who had done heroic work actually around the Gulf after Katrina, and they were, there, there was a lot of pressure in the competition because th I didn't tell you this before, but the federal government put a couple billion dollars of money at the end of the rainbow because there's a lot of um, Sandy disaster relief funding for the region, and the winning teams from this competition were eligible to get you know hundreds of millions of dollars in public funds. And so one of the teams was struggling to come up with an idea that was big enough and robust and attractive enough to, to get that kind of support. And there was one day when we were walking together and they said, Eric, you know, we finally come up with something because you've been pushing us to do the social infrastructure thing. And we've come up with this idea for a brand new um, prototype for a building that does not exist in the world. Um, and we'd love to tell you about it. We're calling it the Resilience Center. You know, that's a big buzzword, by the way, in the world of people who are doing climate change stuff. You know, resilience, we, we're going to bounce back, we're going to get hit, but we're going to be able to bounce back. And I said, wow, that sounds really interesting. You know, can you tell me about it? And they said, um, yes, uh, we're especially excited because we think this is a scalable idea. You know, it's the kind of thing that could go in a lot of different places. And they said, imagine, try, try to imagine a, um, a building, you know, like a, 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 a building in a neighborhood that was like a home away from home for everybody who lives there. 
Uh, they said like the resilient center is going to be a publicly accessible building. It'll be open six, hopefully seven days a week. Um, open door policy, you know, everybody's welcome. Um, we want it to be staffed by these resilience professionals whose job is to be aggressively welcoming. Uh, you know, uh, make sure everyone knows they're there. They're, we're gonna, everyone is welcome in the Resilience Center, but they said, we know that the people who are gonna use the Resilience Center most are the people who are most rooted in life of the neighborhood. So very young people, you know, our kids, and also our older people. Um, and we're gonna have a bunch of special programming for them. So, you know, we'll have a, the, the Resilience Center will have a lot of different rooms that will be, have different functions. And for the kids, you know, we'll do story time and sing-alongs and, you know, we'll do crafts courses and things like that. And they said, Eric, now we understand that kids don't just walk to the Resilience Center by themselves in the morning, so we'll want to have some comfortable furniture for their caretakers. Maybe we'll have some, like, a Wi-Fi network and, uh, you know, tablets and computers. And, and then they said, and for the older people, we could do current events classes. Um, we could do, you know, movie nights. We could have a book club. Um, you know, and maybe we could come up with some programs where they could mix together and do things. And they just said, like, Eric, we're so excited about this idea. Um, uh, honestly, we think, that, you know, this could be everywhere. What do you think? And, right, I mean, it's a fair question. Um, and I've been teaching for a long time uh, at NYU, and I'm used to people giving me, you know, their thoughts about projects that they've been working on for a long time. And I know the best thing to do always is to say, uh, no matter what the proposal, I'm really impressed with all the thinking you've done here. Uh, <laughs> could tell how hard you've worked on it. Um, and I said all that. And then I paused for just a second. And I said, by the way, have you ever heard of a library? Um, because I don't know if you recognized any of those design elements, but they had basically just reinvented the wheel. And, I, you know, at first I was a little frustrated about that because the, the library, you know, they should know about it. And then I realized we, we, we do live in this time when not everybody thinks about the library. I mean, libraries are used by a lot of people. Um, in fact, more and more people use them for all kinds of things, but there is a certain segment of society that still thinks of the library as a reading room, you know, where someone keeps saying, shh. And there's another part of society that thinks, oh, anything that's a real problem could only get solved by, you know, the free market and an app. And the library sounds very ancient. And in fact, you know, um, just around the time this was all happening, there was this uh, economist who wrote an article for Forbes. Maybe some of you saw it. He, he, he basically said uh, the library is obsolete, and until someone shows me the cost-benefit analysis that can cash out the return on investment from the library, I propose that we knock libraries down uh, across the country and replace them with uh, Amazon stores. Yeah. Now, I'm not making that up, by the way. He, that was an honest, genuine proposal. Um, and I could tell by some of your reaction that you, didn't, you don't love that idea. And actually, what's interesting is that um, there are a lot of other people who didn't either. And, and so this crazy thing happened. The librarians of the world united. 
And yeah, don't mess with librarians. They, they united and then they got on Twitter. And that's an even more dangerous combination. And they started to put these tweets out that were so kind of eloquent and amazing. Uh, it's, you know, do you know that libraries do more early literacy than any other public institution? You know, do you know, know libraries do more English as a second language than any other public institution? They do more citizenship training. They register people to vote. They help people do the census. They let people vote. They provide companionship for older adults. They provide uh, all kinds of services for people who've just gotten out of the criminal justice system. Um, they do local culture. They lend people outfits to go on job interviews. They lend people seeds and tools and are a vital part of our democracy. They said a lot more than that and they said it much more beautifully and the most amazing thing happened, which is that within 24 hours, Forbes took the article down. Isn't that great? You can applaud for the librarians. That's a big deal. They, they took, I, I, I think of that as the only good thing that's ever happened on Twitter. And, and it was incredible. And I, I felt really excited when it happened. I got kind of like revved up again. I thought, you know, there's this rising chorus of voices in America, and they believe in public goods, and they believe in, you know, the social infrastructure and shared things. We were going to get through this. And then I had this kind of strange revelation, which I want to share with you if it's okay. Um, I'll, I'll do it. Can we, uh, let's do it as a thought experiment because it's a little more interesting to do that way. I want to ask you to join me in this thought experiment. Um, imagine for a second that there's no such thing as a library. Okay, the library does not exist. It has never been invented. This evening's conversation is sponsored by Amazon. Okay? And, um, and I come on Amazon's dime, and I pitch to you the idea of the library, and you all get really excited about it, and we decide, you know, this is such a good idea. At the end of the talk, instead of the book signing, which is really what I came here for, let's face it. Uh, no, no, no. Instead of the book signing, we are going to caravan to Columbus, and we are going to go to the governor's office, and we're going to make the following pitch to the governor, okay? Here's the pitch we're going to make. We're going to say, uh, Mr. Governor, we've come up with this idea tonight for a thing called the library, and what we would like to you to do is to build a great central library, you know, made of stone and marble with incredible decoration in all of our big cities. And then we want to have uh, branch libraries in pretty much every urban neighborhood. We'd also like to have libraries in every suburban municipality and even small town. Mr. Governor, you can feel free to go out and raise some money if you want some help building them, but really we want these things to be public institutions. So um, they will be the public's responsibility. We'll pay for them with taxpayer money. Uh, we will staff the library with these people called librarians, and their job is going to be they will welcome everyone regardless of their age or their race or their social class or their ethnicity, even their citizenship status, especially their citizenship status. If they're not citizens, we'll welcome them. And when they come in, we'll say, uh, how can we help you? That's pretty much it. You know, how can we help you? Um, we will fill the libraries up with uh, books 
and periodicals and music and videos and we'll have computers and tablets and Wi-Fi access and comfortable furniture. It'll be air-conditioned in the summer. It'll be heated in the winter. And uh, let's see. Oh, um, one more thing, Mr. Governor. Uh, everything in the library will be free for people to take home. And to make sure they bring it back, uh, we'll use an honor system. Okay? Now, I can't see all that well because of the lights, but you can see each other. Just raise your hand as high as you possibly can if you think that if the library did not exist and we went tonight to pitch that to the governor, that he would say, that is an amazing idea. Let's do it, Cuyahoga County. Raise your hand as high as you can. It's very hard for me to see your hands. I don't see any hands at all, actually, <laughs> even with the lights on. I think nobody in this room, nobody in this room, thank you for those lights, nobody in this room thinks that the governor would say yes to that idea, right? And, and the reason that you don't think that, um, and by the way, I've done this in much more solidly blue states too, and nobody raises their hand there either. There's usually like one person who raises their hand and everyone laughs. Um, the reason we don't think that is because that idea that I just proposed, the thing I just went through that we were gonna pitch to the governor, I know that this stage has been here a long time and a lot of people have spoken on it, but I'm willing to bet that that idea is one of the most radical and crazy ideas that has ever been pitched on this stage. You know what I mean? That thing I just laid out for you, that the government would do all that stuff, that is a very radical idea that seems very much out of sync with just about everything we believe as Americans. Right? But here's the crazy thing. We have that. This thing that's so wild and radical and hard to believe, we did that. We, we did. And most other countries on earth have not. Even like the Scandinavian welfare states and the continental Europe, you know, European countries that we go to because they have beautiful public realm, they didn't build up a library system like we did. Right? Next time you're visiting Paris, ask them to show you the branch library. You know? We did something amazing. And then the question is, how did that happen? Now think about that. How is it that this thing that seems so outlandish actually exists? How do we do that? And that is a very long story when you invite me back and read my book a second time, uh, we will have that conversation. But the shorthand way of answering that question is the only reason that we have the library world that exists right now in this country, the library system that exists, is because once upon a time, the people who lived here before us came up with this idea that there should be a thing called the public good. And that it is better to live in a society where we make investments in shared public goods like libraries and parks and schools and athletic fields and universities. Even if it means having a little bit less of our own personal wealth, it's better to live in a society where we create places like that 
where we can gather together, where we can see each other, where we can conceive of each other as a, as a collective, and where we can give people an opportunity to make something better of themselves, where we can create genuine opportunities. That was, that was not just rhetoric. That was the thing that we invested in and voted for and believed in, and that is how we built this country in the 20th century. That's what we did. That's, that's how we really made America great. We invested in each other, we, right? That's how we did it. Right, we built bridges, not walls. And we did it everywhere. And we live inside of that today. And so here's the question that I want us to be talking about right now. And then I want to leave with you because you've got some big decisions to make about how you invest in each other. How many of you in the room tonight, and you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you in the room tonight believe that we are making a world that's better for the people who are coming after us? We should get some technology for this, you know, so we can... Okay, we got old school technology, the light bulb. All right? How many of you think that you in this community are giving to the rising generations who grew up here social infrastructure, public goods, a world that's going to be better for them than the world that you lived in and live in now. I mean, we're slightly higher than before, slightly higher than before, but we, we, are, we are not full of optimism. And then the question is why? You know, why is that the case? My view of, is this, that we, ha we are basically acting like and you can keep the lights up for our conversation because we're heading there in just a minute. We are collectively acting like we are the prodigal children of some very wealthy and successful people who have given us this great gift. And we are basically squandering it. At best, we're spending it down without any regard to what it's going to be like for the people who come after us. And that's got to change, right? That's definitely got to change. Th there's no way we make something more of ourselves if we don't start to do that. And I think tonight, of all nights, we can kind of look into the future and we can see two different visions. And there's one vision which says the only way forward is to build a wall around each our, ourselves, you know, to build a wall around our little community. We, we're going to protect ourselves and to hell with everybody else. And uh, some of us might get through it that way. Some of us might be okay that way. But a lot of people are going to go down. And it's going to be very hard to make something more of ourselves. I think the other way to get through this is to say, at some point, it's probably not going to be soon now, we are going to have to have a new plan for rebuilding. We're going to say enough. We're going to see that our fate is tied to the fate of the people around us. The coronavirus is an incredible story of this, right? You, 
if people around us get really sick, we all become more vulnerable ourselves. You can't seal yourself off from the thing. At some point, we decide the only way forward is to invest in each other. We need an infrastructure plan, right? Is there anybody in this room? Is there anybody in this state? Is there anybody in this country who would say, you know, the thing I love about life best here is the amazing infrastructure we have. Our infrastructure is great, you know? Nobody says that. Nobody says that. We're going to have an infrastructure project, and the question is when, and then the question is what kind of society are we going to make ourselves into? And the, the pitch I'm making to you tonight is when you get into that moment where you start to have a big conversation about how to rebuild Cuyahoga County, how to rebuild Ohio, how to rebuild this country, we recognize that we are who we are, you know, not only because we have a power grid and a transit network, but also because we have a social infrastructure that allows us to spend evenings like this one together, even when some part of us says we should hunker down, the truth is we know that there's, there's no way we get through it that way, that the only way, the only path forward is to spend afternoons, evenings, whatever it takes together like this and come up with some other way to be. We've never needed that more urgently than now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. We'll let you take a breath for a moment. Um, I'm Stephanie Jansky, Director of Programming at the City Club of Cleveland, and we're about to begin the traditional City Club question and answer period. Um, if you have a question, we ask that you make your way to one of the two microphone stands that are under the lights um, in, in the front of the auditorium. Um, we ask that you keep your question brief and to the point, um, and actually a question, so we can get in as many questions as possible. And with that, I'm going to hand Eric some water. Um, and we will take the first question, please. Hi. Um, first of all, I'd like to say I love the book. I, and this is my fourth event of the series here. Um, one of the chapters I've thought about a lot was the one with the child's uh, school where the parents informally yeah. were crowded into the stairwell and then there was a daycare across the street and you contrast, I mean, a coffee shop across street, and it was very informal. And what I find is that a lot of our structure here in Cleveland, you know, we have clubs and things like this, but I'm feeling like we're missing those places where you can just bump into each other and linger. You know, and even the coffee shops, people are just on their computers, and I'm just wondering, is it different for each city or what do you recommend like how we start because we have a few neighborhoods you know that have a lot of gathering places like downtown they did a nice public square and Ohio City has probably six coffee shops but where I live in Cleveland you know we we have grocery stores and gas stations but you know what what do we how do we do that how I, do we start I, thank you for that question I, I, I get it totally um, the contrast I made in the book is between this kind of informal gathering place that grew up around my, my children's school 
in Manhattan where you, you spend a lot of time in the school and then there's a big open sidewalk and, and these coffee shops that are around and coffee shops of course are not public goods but they are relatively accessible. I mean they're not accessible to everyone and there's a lot of people who can't spend five dollars on a cup of coffee um, and you know libraries and public institutions are great for that but there's some communities where you don't even have a coffee shop um, and you don't have a library and so it's hard. So I you know I guess the you know, my, my view is, first of all, um, this is precisely why a social infrastructure plan is important. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to people who say that in the place where they live, there just aren't a sufficient number of gathering places where people can sit and linger and spend time with each other. And that's true for uh, adults and families. It's true for young children also. I mean, I've been to neighborhoods, uh, especially in poor communities, where people say, look, the issue here is that there's not a place for young people to go where they are safe and protected and can just hang out without being um, stigmatized and criminalized. And so they wind up in the streets and, and bad things happen. So I think it's important for everyone who's active in local political conversations where you, you, know, you debate how to use public investments to think about whether you have things like you know, publicly accessible recreation centers or public spaces that where it's known that young people are going to hang out. You know, is there a skateboard park? Uh, is there a basketball court? Uh, is there a playground? Are there benches? Is, the, is there a play area that's multi-generational? And I would like to see American communities do a lot more to invest in those kinds of things. When it comes to, to um, coffee shops and, and that commercial infrastructure, I do think that matters for our social infrastructure more generally. It's a little harder to get that right as a public matter unless you have some kind of tax incentive to try to bring businesses to uh, neighborhoods that don't have it. And, and there's some places that have been successful with that. Um, but I, I am, because of the nature of this book, it seems to me like we, we have the most capacity to shape things at the public level. And I, I'd really like us to focus our attention there. So thank you very much. Yeah. Hello to you, Eric. Thank you for coming to Cleveland. And uh, the question I have for you is that a portion of the book that really piqued my interest was the international infrastructures that you mentioned. And uh, three specific examples you mentioned were a geriatric parks that were in Spain, a three-generational park or space in Finland, and uh, hot pots or swimming pools in Iceland. Was there a certain international infrastructure that really, really piqued your interest, whether it was in the book or not, that you could elaborate on? Well, uh, you know, I. Uh, First of all, let, whoever gets to go to a place where people actually tell you your, their favorite parts of the book, uh, and the book house, you guys actually read the book. I mean, it's a, hats off to you. This is, what a treat it is. So uh, thank you for that close reading. Um, I mean, I picked those, those places because I think they're very special, and they have something to teach us. So in Iceland, um, some of you might know, uh, a, a lot of recreational culture and civic culture happens in these, you know, public or very low price, um, they call them hot pots. Um, you know, they're like hot tubs and uh, swimming areas. And, uh, you know, many of them are, um, you know, quite beautiful. And, um, you know, people are, you know, kind of very intimate with one another in the space. They talk about, I mean, that for example, a lot of them are naked, you know, uh, uh, and, um, you know, that's how they roll over there. 
So, um, uh, so people, you know, they, they engage each other, but they, it's, it's not really the intimacy of the body. It's the fact that there are places where people feel comfortable having conversations about intimate things, and, you know, including social life and civic life and, and politics. And um, it, it's pretty extraordinary. And I note the contrast between the hot pots in Iceland and the public swimming pools in the United States, because, you know, th this book does not make the argument, uh, as I hope you know at this point, if you just build it, everything happens. Uh, our history of public swimming pools is really clear on that because we, we built public swimming pools in the United States and used them for a long time. They were um, same sex for many years. Um, they were same sex and mixed race and th for in most places. And then when we made them uh, uh, sex integrated, we made them racially segregated fear and discrimination against black men in particular, and men of color. And then uh, the courts came in and said, you can't segregate your public swimming pools anymore. And then the response all over the country was to close down the swimming pools. Rather, rather have no swimming pools as public spaces than have racial mixing in the pools. Uh, and then we got the rise of the private swimming pool in the backyard and the country club, you know, the kinds of exclusive places that just came up a minute ago. And so, you know, it's not enough just to build the places. We also have to have an ethic of inclusion. And, and you know, frankly, th that is something I am concerned about as we start to build things moving forward. We need to make an investment in each other, but we have to do it inclusively. You know, we have to do it inclusively. Imagine if the current president said, you know, I want to build a new library in every city and I'm going to put my name on the front of it, you know, and we're going to call it, the, we're going we're to have it a branded public library with my name on it and it's going to be a library just like regular library, only we're going to have no uh, immigrants, you know. If you've ever been convicted of a crime, you can't be there. If you've ever accepted any, you know, public money for anything, you can't be there. Right? I mean, you can imagine, would that still be a library? You know, I'd rather not have it. Okay. Thank you for your question. Yeah, I just want to make a note that... Wait, hold um, on one second. Yeah, there you oh, go. Um, that Cleveland Public Library should be thanked so much for they have beautiful public space now because they rehabbed a Carnegie Library, which is over 107 years old, and they listened to the community and saved that library where other libraries don't always listen <laughs> when, the, when the public say, we want to save a beautiful place. And I wanted to ask you, um, yeah, that was South Euclid Library. <laughs> but anyways, I wanted to ask you what's going on with New York Public Library because they had such a struggle with their reading room and the stacks there and it sounded like a beautiful library and they didn't listen to the community and they changed that whole library. I wondered if you could say anything about that. You know, the, the plan that really um, involved kind of getting rid of the, the, the books that was very controversial uh, kind of got killed. And the big news now in the New York Library is that uh, the Stavros Niarchos Foundation, which is based in Greece, made a $55 billion million dollar gift, and they are redoing the um, uh, lending library in Midtown that's directly across the street from the Grand Central Library. And that will be a much more kind of usable and pleasant space. That will be a major improvement for people who go to the library on 42nd Street and 5th Avenue. 
you won't be surprised to know that my bigger concern is actually not what happens in the big marble building with the lions on the side. I mean, I think that's a really special place, and I've been to incredible galas there, um, and lots of tourists go, and there's great scholars who do research there, but I care more about the branch libraries, which are the lifeblood of so many communities, and this is one of those areas where philanthropy, I think, really falls short. You know, so I went to a college once where someone said to me, we can't raise enough money to have all the financial aid money we need, but we have a hundred year waiting list to donate a boat to the crew team. Uh, because philanthropists often want to be involved with a very particular kind of place and they want to put their name on a particular kind of thing. Or they're just interested in the areas where they happen to live or once grew up and so there's this kind of arbitrariness that happens when you organize society around philanthropy. Um, not to mention that it's not a very democratic way to run things. And so I think the New York City public library system, like many public library systems, suffers from this problem of having philanthropists who want to support the celebrity centers and are less concerned about what's happening in neighborhoods where most of us live. And, and I think it's time for us to remember that these should be palaces for the people, um, even if they don't have lions on the side. Thanks. Hi. So in 1995, I was a graduate student in Chicago. I had just written my uh, qualifying exams and was waiting to defend them when I lost my mind along with most of the city for seven days. Um, and then I was working as a commercial electrician when Sandy hit Cleveland. And those two things, faster motion and slower motion, ended me up back in school to become an electrical engineer, which is why I actually haven't read your book. <laughs> Although I have read Heat Wave because I read that before I went back to school to learn to be an electrical engineer because we have all of our electrical infrastructure underwater when there's a problem. Um, so those two... <laughs> <laughs> and I just want you to know there's a room full of people who will support you when you read it. Uh, you could definitely find conversations yeah, actually here. Actually, I see half a dozen who are going to loan me the book <laughs> since it's been out from the library for some time. But the the thing I want, and and you may cover this, but I'm absolutely the choir. But in between graduate school and becoming commercial electrician, I had a lot of time to think about what are the bad things that we've done to ourselves as a society? And I've had help on morning dog walks with my neighbors. We torture ourselves. What are the really bad things? So it turns out residential real estate segregation is possibly the really bad thing. Um, maybe with a little bit of, I identify as a consumer rather than a maker of things thrown in. So you've mentioned the problem of inclusion, but I want to make it make the point that it's even harder because we've done such a good job physically separating ourselves from the others and that other could be rich poor that could be white black could be latino could be age could be all of it and i don't think we get to understanding what we've lost without making that geography <laughs> disappear essentially it's a great point and i agree with it and Look, separate and equal is not a thing. Yeah. Right. It's you, you organize your society around segregation, you're going to wind up with real inequality. And it's important to recognize how much of um, the inequality that we suffer from in this country still 
um, that undermines our capacity to, to act collectively and it causes so many people so much uh, unnecessary uh, pain and, and sickness and worse uh, is due to all the work we did to make this a segregated society. And that is a very urgent project undoing that. So thank you. Hi, I just started the book, but I heard you um, on the 99% Invisible podcast and a couple other places. I'm really interested in the, um, the work you're doing. Um, I'm actually... Uh, I just want to say, I, we've all got like incredibly honest here because we've gotten there. It's like, we started and it was like on page 76. And I was like, I'm really I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't read your book. I have read this other book, you know, and I was like, I've started your book. I thought it was going to be a little more interesting. Uh, <laughs> I did, did help me. I've been looking for a sleep aid, and you're right now. Thank you for starting the book. I'm sorry, yeah. Um, so I'm an architect, and I'm actually currently designing a branch library for CPL, and as well as an intergenerational community center in another community. And I was wondering what tips you would have for architects and designers and when we're thinking about the physical space that is the social infrastructure. Oh, my God. Well, read the book, man. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay, that's... Look, I mean, I think, um, what, are the, what are my thoughts about uh, designing a new place? Um, people like light. Light is really good in a library space. I think one of the th very special things about building a library that is a palace for people is that the, a, a beautiful design of a building can dignify a per the person who walks in in a way that very few things can. And it's interesting, you know, libraries host this kind of impossible community of people who you know, have no business spending time together um, because the libraries have become the place of last resort for everyone who slips through our safety net. And that's a beautiful thing about a library, but it also makes life inside a library fairly hard because, you know, the libraries were not meant to absorb all of this and librarians get overwhelmed by all the challenges. And one of the things that will always amaze me when I spend time in libraries during the writing from this book is um, how little conflict you actually see in a library on a given day. There's something about the building itself, especially when it's done well, that brings out the best in us because we recognize that the library is dignifying us. We, we feel the generosity of the building. And so there's not a, a formula for how you do that, but um, you know, uh, it goes without saying that the library needs to be accessible, right, so everyone can, can get in there. Um, I think there's some real issues about how you organize space in the library so that different kinds of users can feel safe and comfortable there. So, um, you know, increasingly uh, libraries have, you know, really spe special and separated children's areas where, you know, children and their caretakers know that despite the fact that there's going to be some hard stuff that goes on in the library, the kids are going to feel okay there. And I think it's also really important on the flip side to try to design spaces that will potentially integrate people who might not otherwise have conversations with each other. And that's something that you can do through physical design, but also certainly through programming, right? So all of that and make sure there's enough bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of enthusiasm for toilets here in Cleveland. Hi. Uh, hello hello there. Name, I am the Duchess of the Bronx. I'm a New Yorker. Come back. Money. <laughs> I, I, I know. And I've actually uh, given a lot. Of, I've, I'm lucky enough to give, give a lot of money to the City University of New York, where I taught for a while. 
Um, and I'm also a social worker on odd days. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you some questions. I have read most of your book. <laughs> I have. It's the best night of my life, by the way. No, it's, it's you great. You totally it's, turned around what started as a really awful day. Yeah. When you were talking about safe spaces, that yeah. chapter, which is a, something that I'm quite interested in, have you thought, or has anybody in this city thought, about some co uh, cooperative ventures, in financial ventures, like restaurants or um, any kind of small business that you could put in a park that's run by the neighborhood? So th there are all kinds of local experiments to try to um, create tax subsidies and incentives for businesses. And there are some interesting partnerships. Like in the book I write, in the, in the chapter about health, I write about actually this neighborhood Englewood for all of you guys on this side of the room, um, where uh, a set of community organizations uh, tried to revitalize the neighborhood that had all this uh, abandoned space and all these empty lots by, by building out community gardens. And from the community gardens, they came up with this idea that, you know, Englewood has always been a, a food desert, or it has been a food desert for 30 years. How could we use these community gardens to turn it into a food destination? And there's been this push, and they get not a ton of government support, but a little government support. They get more philanthropic and you know, foundation support. And then a lot of community organizers who are using their time and energy to build a local food scene. And you know, it's going to take some work to really build it up, but they're making a real effort. And the truth is, if you look around the country, you, you do find a lot of examples of projects like this, but not enough, yeah. you know, but not enough. And to be honest, you know, the, the city resources that we use for programs like this are pretty paltry. And so what a great idea it would be for, you know, entrepreneurial people who want to get involved in local politics. I understand you have a lot of local governments here, uh, you know. And, um, you know, what a great opportunity it would be, given how many local governments you have, to experiment and try to find ways to invest in each other. So thank you for that question. Thank you. Oh, okay. Metro Health is trying to transform, do a lot of things to transform the neighborhood around it. Yeah. And I think there's all kinds of great things that, I mean, I've, at, I've given them several ideas. Good. Um, Good. Uh, <laughs> Because I, I, I have some influence there and a whole lot of good ideas. The, I just wanted to ask you one more thing about safe spaces. Have you considered the idea of what gangs represent? Uh, I'm what, very, ga what gangs represent? Yeah, who they really are. That, somewhat out of my territory there. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, so the answer is probably no. I have not. Sp I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the role of gangs, but I do know that, um, you know, from from reading other people's research, um, you know that that w you know when you have heavy gang presence in a neighborhood, it really can change the the kind of social order of space, sometimes in surprising ways. And there's a lot of um, gangs that provide social services that aren't getting provided by other parts of the community, and that. So, um, you know, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated story and probably not one that most of us have the energy to uh, work through together tonight. But, um, 
but but you know, I, I guess the one thing I would say about that is that um, you know our response to the idea of gangs for a long time has been to um, you know to punish and incarcerate. And I think one of the challenges we deal with now as a society is that we had millions of people who've been part of this criminal justice system and they're 90 plus percent of them come back out and into our neighborhoods and communities and we haven't done a lot to you know, provide education and other kinds of services and, and that becomes another challenge for us to deal with that consequences. So it's very much in keeping with the theme of tonight which is that you, know, you can't just wall someone out uh, and think that you're going to be fine because of it. Um, we live in a relationship with everybody who's on the other side of the wall as well, and oftentimes our security is wrapped up in theirs too. So th thank you very much for those terrific questions. So. About what happened in the Bronx with two gangs. It's called the Ghetto Brothers. Okay. And, well, thank, thank you. And it's, a gr it's really how two gangs made peace and changed okay. the neighborhood. Okay. And then I will give you a copy of my book. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Which is about folks without homes. Okay, thank you. I might bring you back to the Bronx with me, so. Uh, greetings, everybody. My name is Andrew Mangles. I'm the director at Westlake Porter Public Library. Um, I've had the great privilege of seeing Eric speak now three times. Um, and it's been amazing every time, and I have to say that I agree with you on most everything, but you have put me in the awkward position tonight of having to defend French libraries. <laughs> so about three years ago, my daughter was doing a rotary exchange program in France in a small town south of Paris called Chateauroux, and when we would... Well, we're just... Everybody knows about Chateauroux. We're, we're a little bit south there. And when they heard... When they heard that a big shot library director, and I don't know where they got that idea, uh, but a big shot library director from Ohio was coming to visit, uh, they rolled out the red carpet and gave me a, a tour of their library from top to bottom, a private tour. I got to go into the basement and see these wonderful archives of this newspaper collection that was pre and post World War II. It was fascinating. But what struck me the most was that on their shelves, they had a copy of John Belushi's 1941 on VHS tape. So. Um, the French libraries I stand are, corrected. Yeah. Sorry about that. The French libraries are keeping it real. Yeah. So just be careful. <laughs> My bad. Tonight we enjoyed an evening with Eric Kleinenberg, author of Palaces for the People, how social infrastructure can help fight inequality, polarization, and the decline of civic life. This forum is part of Cuyahoga County's common book initiative, One Community Reads. We want to thank all of our sponsors who made this evening possible, Playhouse Square, the City Club of Cleveland, and the Fairmont Temple. We appreciate your support. One Community Reads is a collaboration of your nine public library systems and is supported by the City Club of Cleveland and Playhouse Square. Production and streaming were provided by IdeaStream. The sale of Mr. Kleinberg's Palaces for the People is provided by Max Bax Books on Coventry in Cleveland Heights. And that will bring us to the end of this evening's forum. Thank you, Mr. Kleinberg. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned and our book signing will take place in the lobby. On behalf of all of the One Community Reads partners, have a wonderful evening. Thank you. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.
Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.